Okay, so it was my intention to go through and continue in Romans, um, but I uh, determined that uh, it was best to, to pause where my preparation was and to pick up with what I had been preparing for for uh, the whole week, which has to do with the second and fourth commandments for the conference that I taught on yesterday. Um, and providentially, it happens to be what most people celebrate as Easter. And so what I'd like to uh, do is to express to you how the fourth commandment and the second commandment relate to that and show you what the word of God has to say about yeah, made holy days, but also to think about Sabbath keeping properly. So today is the day of resurrection celebration, but that's true on every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day is the day appointed for the celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why there is a change from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And so we do not want to add to what God has appointed. And so let me give to you, to begin with, um, 1 Kings chapter 12, the end of the chapter, starting at verse 25. For the context, while you're turning there, 1 Kings chapter 12, um, what we have is Israel has just suffered a breakup. Um, there has been a secession of the ten northern tribes and one of the interesting features of that is that includes the tribe of Simeon, which was actually settled in Judah. Uh, so Judah is in the south, and Simeon's land is in the middle of it. And it's said when they're settled in that land that they're actually given part of Judah's land. So there's kind of this double claim on the land. It's Judah's land and it's Simeon's land. And, but there's so much land that Judah is given that they can't fill it all. And so Simeon is given a portion of it. Uh, but ultimately, the tribe of Simeon... <coughs> leaves and most of the people there depart with the northern tribes in this secession and so some of the members of the tribe of Simeon seem to kind of just possibly stay and blend into the tribe of Judah um, and then in the north the, the tribe of Levi is scattered throughout Israel um, in all of the tribes and that's in order to have the priesthood teaching people throughout the whole country um, but what happens is in abandoning the order, the just divinum, the, the, the law of God order that God has given, the northern tribes end up in order to avoid having one part of the law pressed upon them. Uh, they end up rejecting large swaths of the law of God and the Levites largely flee into Judah. And so the southern tribes are often considered to be three tribes principally. You have the tribe of Benjamin, which was much smaller than the other tribes because of an event that had resulted in the wiping out of most of them. Um, then you have the tribe of Judah, which was larger than most of the tribes. And you have most of the Levites going into the southern kingdom, Judah. So the northern, northern kingdom with the, the ten tribes and some fraction of, of the Levites remaining, uh, they have another kingdom. And in the south you have King Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, who uh, did not want to accept limitations on his power. And you have Jeroboam, who is uh, chosen to represent the northern tribes. And he previously had been an officer in the court of Solomon and then of Rehoboam. So Jeroboam, as king, you have chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. It says, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, let's pause and consider that thought. So, Rehoboam was a tyrant, imposing unlawful authority. The northern ten tribes lawfully secede based upon tyranny. They have a right to secede based upon covenant breaking by the king. They do secede. But Rehoboam is concerned for the preservation of his own power and to avoid being overthrown by his own people. He decides, rather than to rely upon God and doing righteousness, to seek to undermine the law of God for the maintaining of his own power. And so often, think about how often we, we see these Republican candidates, they're for smaller government, they family values, they whatever, they get to D.C., and all of a sudden they're voting on pork bills that fatten up the anti-family alliance for Family Destruction Incorporated, right? And so you go, how, how did this happen? Well, they get into power and they want to preserve power. It's this, this love of power. This is the tendency in the heart of man. And so this is what's happening here is using initially the idea of the law of God to say that this is tyrannical and we won't submit, followed up by an undermining of the law of God. So what does he do out of a desire to build up his own power? Verse 28. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he set he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines in the high places, and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made, at Bethel. And on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel, and offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. Now, we'll go through the text. I'm going to talk through the text. But I want to give you a perspective. The uh, Westminster Assembly wrote four major documents. Five. Actually, I'm sorry, forgive me. Five major documents. There were the Westminster Confession of Faith. There were the Larger Catechism. There were the Shorter Catechism. There were the Form of Church Government. And there were the Directory for Public Worship. They also wrote another document that's sometimes listed as a sixth major one. That's the Directory for Family and Private Worship. But these five, because they're associated with church government, are typically the ones that are recognized as most significant. So the Directory for Public Worship... The last section of it 
The very last part of it is titled, Touching Days and Places for Public Worship. It says, There is no day commanded in Scripture to be kept holy under the gospel but the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days, vulgarly called holy days, have no warrant, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. Nevertheless, it is lawful and necessary upon special emergent occasions to separate a day or days for public fasting or thanksgiving as the several imminent and extraordinary dispensations of God's providence shall administer cause and opportunity to his people. As no place, that's, that's everything about time, and then it moves on to, to, to public worship location. As no place is capable of any holiness under pretense of whatsoever dedication or consecration, so neither is it subject to such pollution by any superstition formerly used and now laid aside as may render it unlawful or inconvenient for Christians to meet together therein for the public worship of God. And therefore we hold it requisite that the places of public assembling for worship among us should be continued and employed to that use. So there were two questions that had arisen. One, what should we do about feast days, festival days, holy days? And what should we do about places that had been previously consecrated as holy spaces by popish ceremonies? And so the idea was, look, we're not doing these ceremonies there anymore. We can use the spaces for meeting. There's not some pollution where we're stuck out of it. If you continue to do idolatry there, you should not go and be a part of the idolatry. But if the idolatry has been stopped, that place should be used if it's convenient for assembly publicly. Festival days should not be continued. Holy days should not be continued because they are not commanded. Now, take the logic that the Westminster Assembly used in talking about holy days there and think about it in relationship to what was said of Jeroboam and his establishing of this day. It says in verse 33, he made offerings on the altar which he had made, like not the altar God had commanded them to make, at Bethel on the 15th of the 8th month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. He devised this day, he devised this time in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. This whole thing is looked upon with disapproval. It's said that it became a sin. And what's being shown here is all of the religious ordinances that he's abandoning and the way he's instituting things of his own will. This is what the Apostle Paul would call in Colossians 2, will worship. He's worshiping his own will, instituting something of his own desire. When we look at human traditions, no matter how ancient they are, no matter how venerated they are amongst the race of man, we ought not to hold on to them and think that they are holy because of what men have done. It is the word of God and the word of God alone that makes a thing holy. And so, let's walk through the text and consider in comparison to our own modern holy days. Today is a holy day. It is the Lord's day. It is not holy because it's Easter. It's holy because it is the Lord's day. And so, being the Lord's day, it is the day that we celebrate the resurrection. So verse 28. Therefore the king asked advice. What advisors were these? Do you think that these were the Levites and the prophets? Were these the men that were looking to scripture? 
earlier on, there's an explanation of King Rehoboam and what did he do when his people asked him to reduce the forced labor that Solomon had imposed. He had two sets of advisors. There were the elders of the land, and they advised him, if you will, but remove this heavy yoke, you will have the hearts of the people. They will love you, they will serve you, they will honor you. But he spoke to the young men, and the young men, despising the rights of the people, hating their liberty, being toadies, flatterers. They advised the king, press upon them a heavier yoke and make them serve you and do more for you than they did for your father. Don't show weakness. It is no weakness to recognize the limits of power that the Lord God Almighty has imposed upon us. It is great foolishness to demand submission beyond what God has commanded. So the king asked advice, and apparently, with the consent of his advisors, he made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. The law of God is too burdensome to you. The law of the king was too burdensome, even though it was beyond what the law of God allowed. Right? No ta- taxation of 10% was to be considered tyrannical. Right? That was the warning in 1 Samuel 8. If you have a king, he's going to tax you 10% horror. Right? The emoji with the like, blue face and like, the stretched out <laughs> mouth. That's, that's the response to that. Now we think 10%, you know, wow, that would be amazing. That's the response. That's the expected response. This guy thinks he's God. He gets 10%. He gets a tithe. I mean, come on. So the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, remember Aaron said that the one golden calf, this was the God of Israel. This is Yahweh, right? And so, worshiping God, even the true God, by means not appointed by him, making a golden calf, making an image, using an image, making a drawing of Jesus, and saying, look, we should, this is Jesus, right? That's, that is contrary to the law of God. We're not to worship the true God by means he is not appointed, much less now multiplying gods. Now, whether he had the sophistic arguments of saying that, these things were really just one God with two manifestations in terms of the, the calf here, or whether and he's just saying God's plural because of you know, some sort of a, a representation and saying here are, here are representations of the one God, or whether he's actually now multiplying gods. In either case, it's idolatry. And he's attributing that these are, this is the true God of Israel, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so he's redefining God and stealing the glory of God and giving it to this false God. And so false religious ordinances are idolatry and they teach lies. False religious ordinances are idolatry and they teach lies. When we worship God wrongly, it encourages us to think of God wrongly. When we worship God wrongly, it encourages us to think of God wrongly. And if we are made for the glory of God, then how are we distorting our purpose and our design if we think of God wrongly? There will be much more that flows out of it. It tends towards its own continued destruction. 
And so we ought to flee idolatry out of the fear of the Lord, fearing that he might chasten us by causing us to have much greater misery than if we will not touch the unclean thing. Verse 29, he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So Bethel is toward the border of Judah, and Dan is up in the north. When it was United Kingdom, you often see like Dan to Beersheba. That's the, that's the phraseology. And now it's Dan to Bethel, because it's a shorter country. Verse 30. Now this thing became a sin. Was it a sin when, when he made the golden calves and said they were God? These are gods? Is it saying like the things that followed are the things that made it a sin? No. The point is it became even a worse sin. It became a sin for the whole people because he, he drew the people into unrighteousness. Imagine for a second if this king, if Rehoboam had had advisors who were godly men. Even though he might not have had, his, had the wisdom, there might have been a restraining power. Had there been a Daniel or a Mordecai? Had there been a Joseph in his ranks? An advisor, not the king, but a faithful servant. It is so important to be surrounded by godly advisors. People who will stir you on. Not just not hinder you from your reformation. Not just say, okay, you can do that. But people who will push you to keep the law of God. Because I promise you, friend, you will have times when you are tempted to not follow the law of God. And you want to be around people who will push you to keep the law of God when it is not convenient when you're tempted to do otherwise, when you are in a moment of weakness. Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Why, why as far as Dan? Why not as far as Dan and Bethel? As far as Dan, because Dan is so far away from Jerusalem, it's further away. So they went as far as even Dan. They, they, they went to the full extent of that jurisdiction, away from Jerusalem, the appointed place. And it's funny, oftentimes you know, people will ask advice, can I do such and such, is this okay, like, is this whatever? They're always looking for, what's the furthest, am I able to get this far away from what I'm positively commanded to do, is it okay? And there's that general desire to figure out, well, what's the maximum jurisdictional boundary I can get to? as opposed to looking for what is the law command what is the thing that I can do in this situation okay is there a lawful exception here why is that lawful exception there that lawful exception actually defines a good work so what's the good work for what's the exception for it teaches us that so let's think about killing right you shall not kill okay we want to preserve life we want to avoid fights when you have the exceptions it's for defending yourself it's for waging just war for punishing criminals Punishing criminals is a good work. It's a good thing. Waging just war is a good work. It's a good thing. And defending yourself is a good work. It's a good thing. Those aren't just like bad things that are like, you know, on the edges of what the law allows. It's a righteous deed to wage just war. It's a righteous deed to punish criminals. It's a righteous deed to defend yourself. The exceptions are not telling us how far away we can get. They are teaching us positive 
moral duties. And when those exist. Verse 31. He made shrines in the high places. If you're familiar with any of the texts that came before 1 Kings, you'll know that that's forbidden. Right? The, the, the putting up of these, these two fake temples with the, with the idols tended towards now a breaking out in the bonds of limitation on acceptable worship. There's now more chaos. He made shrines in the high places and made priests for every class of people, rejecting of the lawfully established mechanisms for having officers who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So this is a feast that has certain similarities to the feast that was in Judah. Now, the, the feasts that would be thought about are the feasts that would draw people to Jerusalem. That's The fear is by going to Jerusalem regularly, there are three feasts that the people had to go to Jerusalem for. The Passover, right? And then we have Pentecost. And then there is the booths. And so in those feasts, what you have is you have these three events where people would be drawn together to interact, to worship, and that would encourage national unity between the tribes because it's going to, as you interact with people uh, and you have peaceable interaction and you have shared morality and shared philosophy, the question arises, why aren't we unified? So agreement of practice and doctrine encourages covenanted uniformity. It encourages covenanted unification. And so meeting together encourages that. Now, when that happens in churches, when that happens in nations, those are the things that they tend towards. And in fact, that's the mature form of unity, is to covenant, to solemnly acknowledge the uniformity that already exists. And so we're told, for example, in Philippians 3, to have the same doctrine, the same mind, and we're told to have the same rule for practice. And how do we capture that? Well, we discuss it, and you have much discussion, and then you capture that into documentation. You have confessions of faith, and you have this idea of having one rule. The word in the Greek for rule is, is kenoi, okay, so that's the root of the word canon. So you have this the canon law, you share law. Okay, and so that's that gets captured in, in constitutions and judgments. And so those things, the church ought to do that. And what happens when that becomes the authority rather than the word of God is you end up making it so that that is equal to or above scripture and reason. And you make it so that you end up in controlling things with that church authority. And that is the hardening of a tradition. And so we see that in Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy. And so these rules about worship that that Jeroboam initiates, they are put over Scripture. The clear teachings of Scripture are not able to hold back these abuses. The people accept this human authority, and they become the slaves of men. And it's ironic, because what were they leaving the unified kingdom over? Not wanting to be the slaves of the king. And now they have thrown off 
the religious ordinances of God and become the slaves of this king. He's lord of their conscience. He's telling them how to worship God. He's telling them these things, you should do this, even though the word of God forbids it. The word of God doesn't command this stuff, but do it anyways. And so in seeking to flee slavery, they have become slaves. Verse 33. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month. In the month which he devised in his own heart, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. And notice, he is the one doing this. The kings were not to be the priests as so long as the Levitical priesthood was the priesthood that God had in effect. And so this unifying of the priesthood into the kingship, he ordained a feast, he offered sacrifices and on the altar that he's established and burnt incense. And so uh, this is another element of the forbidding. So the bounds of the authority of the word of God have been thrown off. Now we considered what was said in the directory for public worship. Um, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to look at the larger catechism and I'd like to encourage you to go to question 107 there which says which is the second commandment second commandment is you shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea you shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, this commandment, idolatry is used as a symbolic head, a synecdoche, a highest type of sin, to represent all worship not instituted by God. And there's a blessing and a curse. The curse is... If you worship God in the way that he has not appointed, there's a curse to the third and fourth generation. There are very few things you're going to do in your life that are going to have a negative impact for three or four generations. This is one of the things that can do it. And I'll tell you what. I don't know what else you're possibly going to do that's going to have a generational effect that goes out to the thousandth generation. But look at this promise. And let's look at the context for a second. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me. And keep my commandments. Did we switch subjects all of a sudden to thousands of individuals? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them. What was the previous them referring to? Generations. And showing mercy unto thousands. Thousands of what? generations of them that love me and keep my commandments we are trained to not care about the doctrine or worship of God doctrine divides all that and that's what we're trained that's the, that's the thing that is said broadly 
right doctrine and right worship unite the people of God and prevent division. Right doctrine and right worship have a blessing to the thousandth generation. The Lord will preserve a people to worship him aright in the earth. And Elijah was concerned that the people were trying to kill him. He just defeated some priests of Baal, and now people were trying to kill him. He says he's crying out to God. People seek my life now. And God says, I have preserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are people throughout the earth. There are churches. There are individuals. There are families that seek to preserve the worship of God, pure and entire. The duty of the church is to gather those people and to help to mature them. The desire to concentrate, because that's one of the principles of war, is you concentrate resources in order to then focus them for the offensive. So the God, God, the God who invented warfare, has made the church for the purpose of gathering the saints to concentrate them for war. So we can use our gifts and weapons together to overcome the flesh and the world and the devil. Now, 108. What are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping. Right? We're to, we're to receive it. We're supposed to do it. We're supposed to guard it. Pure and entire. All such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. Particularly, prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and vowing unto him, as also the disapproving, detesting, and opposing. Let me, let me read that part again because it's... It rubs against your American 21st century soul, right? The disapproving, detesting, and opposing all false worship. And according to each one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. It is your job, according to your station, to remove monuments of idolatry that are under your authority. 109. What are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion, the making any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices. How do you know if a device is superstitious? Is it something you're commanded to use in the word of God? Like, you got a rabbit's foot? Any lucky charms? Anybody ever given you one? Kiss the Blarney Stone. Okay? It's not appointed by the Word of God. And here, I'll tell you what. 
Here are the physical things that are appointed by the word of God. Anointing with oil for the sick, laying on of hands of men for ordination, and for the sick, and for blessing, sacraments of the Lord's Supper, and baptism. What other religious physical things do you have? Let me pause there. Any men? Any of you know of any other religious physical signs that are given to us by God that are being used in the public worship of God? Raising up of the hands for blessing? Head coverings? Okay. If you think of one at the end, bring it up in the comments or questions. It's not one of those things. It's not in the Bible. It's a superstitious device. Any things that God has not appointed that we try to use for a spiritual benefit. Corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others. Though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Simony. That's paying for a church office or for a spiritual blessing. Sacrilege. And destroying anything sacred. Using it in a profane way. All neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God has appointed. Now, we tend to not think very highly of the second commandment or the careful guarding of the worship of God. And so God attached a reason. Go to question 110. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment the more to enforce it? Answer, the reasons annexed to the second commandment the more to enforce it contained in these words, quote, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, end quote. Or, besides God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us, right? God's sovereign over us, he has authority over us, and he owns us. We're his property. That's what the propriety there means. We're his property. Right? We're clay. He's a potter. Besides God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us, his fervent zeal for his own worship. God's jealous. God is zealous for his worship. And his revengeful indignation against all false worship as being a spiritual whoredom. Right? He talks about this idea of idolatry being like an adultery against Christ. Right? This idea that it's unfaithfulness in the covenant marriage with God. Accounting the breakers of this commandment such as hate him. Well, it's a big deal. Well, by doing it, you're saying you hate God. When you use religious devices, superstitions, things that God has not appointed, you're saying you hate God. And he, threat, he threatens to punish them unto diverse generations. And he esteems the observers of such as love him and keep his commandments and promises mercy to them and to many generations. That's that's Westminsterian understatement if ever I heard one. Many generations. Thousands and thousands of generations. Sure, many. That's fine. Accurate, I suppose. Okay. Now, holy time is talked about for us in the fourth commandment. So what's the fourth commandment? Question 115. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. 
sorry, in it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested in the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He blessed it for our good, and he set it apart. He made it holy. Not keeping it holy is sacrilege which you may remember was forbidden in the second commandment. Question 116, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requires of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he has appointed in his word. Expressly, one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day of the week ever since, ever since the resurrection of Christ. And so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament, is called the Lord's Day. So, one seventeen. how is the Sabbath of the Lord, or the Lord's Day, to be sanctified? Answer, the Sabbath of the Lord's Day is to be sanctified, or is to be kept holy, by a holy resting all the day. Notice the double use of sanctified and holy, right? It's to be made holy by a holy resting. What is the holy resting? You're carefully guarding it. You're keeping it separate from the other kind of work, right? So there's this, it's holy resting all the day, not only from such works are at all times sinful, right? So we, we shouldn't sin on the Lord's Day. I'm sure that's news. We shouldn't sin on the Lord's Day in a way that would be a sin on a normal day. But even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful, it's the things that are good works on other days. Our sin on the Sabbath. And we're to make it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it is this to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. We are made to know God. The Sabbath is a day where God says feast. It's a feast day. It's a day where we're to feast on the word of God, the bread of life. We are to keep ourselves from other things so that we can feast on the word of God. And we have the feast of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, on the Lord's Day, because it's the feast day. And that is a symbolic feast of bread and wine to point to the fact that we take in the word, that we eat the bread of life. And so we take in the word of God on this feast day And on this day, there is no gluttony. You cannot gorge yourself on the Word of God. When you take in the Word of God, when you know God more, it's more enjoyable as you take in more. When you eat food, the first bite is the best. The next few might seem just about as good. But after a while maybe the second, maybe the third plate, 
it ceases to be enjoyable. And though you might continue, for whatever reason, it drives you on. Fourth plate was terribly a bad idea. But with the word of God, each bite will bring satisfaction and joy to your soul. And this day is a day to delight in. And so we we are to use it. We are to use it to feast on the word of God. We are to make it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's worship. I'm not even going to comment on necessity and mercy because every time everybody talks about the Sabbath, that's all they talk about are the exceptions. Well, what if I run into a person who is like dying in the middle of the street? Should I not go to church? Okay, I'm not doing this. You understand what works of necessity and mercy are? If you want to know more about it, ask me afterwards. In the public and private exercises of God's worship, and to that end, we are to prepare our hearts. And with such foresight, diligence, and moderation, foresight, diligence, and moderation, we're told to remember the Sabbath so we can think forward to it, so we can organize things to keep it. In moderation, do you do a bunch of extra work so you can have a day of rest? No, there are things that you have to do on the Sabbath, works of necessity and mercy, and you don't do a fair safe rigmarole, spending three days making it so you can have one day of rest and taking away any sort of productivity from those three days. That's not what you do. Foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. 118, why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors? The charge of keeping the Sabbath is more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it themselves, but to see that it be observed by all those that are under their charge and because they are prone oft times to hinder them by employments of their own. Be careful with wives and sons and daughters and employees to guard them from breaking the Sabbath on our behalf. And that includes people that we contract. That includes going to a restaurant and paying somebody to serve you there. What are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omission of the duties required, all careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of those duties, of being wary of those duties. And what if, what if the Sabbath doesn't feel like a delight? That points to a problem in your soul. Why is it not delightful? Am I going to lie to you and say that I've never been weary of the Sabbath? No, I have, especially in the beginning. It's been a long time since I've had that feeling. It takes pushing through and figuring out what it is that's difficult about it. What is the misvaluing that's occurring in the mind? Do you really think that you exist to grow in the knowledge of God? to act according to the knowledge of God and to spread the knowledge of God. (coughs) All profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. And we should seek to have holy conferences as opposed to 
figuring out, well, can I do this on the Sabbath? Okay, well, is it, is it something that's going to make it so that you can do the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, can I go for a walk on the Sabbath? Sure. Are you, you going to be listening to an audiobook? Are you going to be praying? Are you going to be meditating? Are you going to be talking to somebody? Like, like, what are you going to do, though, to use that time to grow in the knowledge of God? We should avoid talking about things that distract us from the Word of God. We should avoid thinking about things. Like, I, I run a business, right? Do you think I'm drawn at all to think about problems that come to my <laughs> awareness? Do you think anybody ever tries to talk to me about business problems? You know? Like, you have to try to guard your thoughts and your words and what you're spending your time on on the Sabbath. You guard it. You hedge it. And you know, it's the little foxes that destroy the garden. It's the little things that get in that destroy the enjoyment of the Sabbath. You can, you can try to get the big stuff or whatever, but if you don't seek to stop the little things that would constantly break into it you're not going to get to enjoy it and so you have to be careful to guard it 120 what are the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment the more to enforce it the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment the more to enforce it are taken from the equity of it the, the equity of it, the, the orderliness and beauty of the idea. God allowing us six days out of seven for our own affairs and reserving but one for himself in these words, six days shall you labor and do all your work. All your work. From God's challenging a special propriety in that day, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. The Sabbath of the Lord thy God is the Sabbath owned by the Lord your God. It's challenging. This is a special day that I'm claiming ownership on. From the example of God, who in six days made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. God could have made everything instantaneously. Augustine had like a really hard time with this. He's like, maybe, maybe this is allegorical. Maybe it wasn't six days. Maybe it was instantaneous. And he explained it as six days. He just didn't like it. He just couldn't handle that it was actually six days. He wanted it to be instantaneous because God has power to do things instantaneously. And so it's like he was jumping the gun on God's power for God. If God wanted to do it instantaneously, he could have done it instantaneously. Why did God spend six days making the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them? So that he could actually, in history, exemplify working six days and then resting on the seventh. Yeah, he did. That's what he did. He did it, literally, in history. Now, we're told in John 5.17 that he's been working since creation in a different way. Providence. First six days, making all things for nothing. After that, providence, governing what he's made. In six days, God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and he rested the seventh day. And from that blessing which God put upon that day, not only in sanctifying it to be a day for his service, but in ordaining it to be a means of blessing to us in our sanctifying it. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Sabbath is for your good. I promise. God promises. The Sabbath is for your good. God doesn't just promise it. He swears it. 
It's a part of the covenant administration given to Moses. He swears that this is for your good. He wrote it on tablets of stone as the covenant and gave it to Moses and said, do this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's for your good. God swears it's for your good. One twenty one. Why is the word remember set in the beginning of the fourth commandment? The word remember is set in the beginning of the fourth commandment partly because of the great benefit of remembering it, we being thereby helped in our preparation to keep it, and in keeping it better to keep all the rest of the commandments. Think about that. The Sabbath is a bulwark to help us to keep the rest of the commandments. As we grow in the knowledge of God using the Sabbath, and as we measure time by it, and there's a rhythm that God has established from creation. It helps us to keep the rest of the commandments. We order our lives around it. And to continue a thankful remembrance of the two great co- benefits of creation and redemption. Right? The, initial crea- the initial Sabbath was to remember the resting from creation. And the change of the day to the first day of the week is to remember the redemption that's been accomplished for us and the resurrection of Christ, which is given as an emblem of that accomplishment. And so creation and redemption contain a short abridgment of religion. And partly because we are very ready to forget the Sabbath. Because there's less light of nature for the Sabbath. But what about the structure of reality makes you think there's seven day a week? And that one in seven is the proportion that we should keep holy. The, there's not something about the structure of reality that's easily observable there. But it's been given. And it is for our good. And yet, it restrains our natural liberty in things that other times are lawful. Right? The odd thing about the Sabbath, it says this thing is sin today that normally is a good work. That it comes but once in seven days. So the other six days we might be tempted to forget it, to not think about it, to not think about time in that way. And many worldly businesses come between right? the, the rush of the whirlwind, the pressing in of urgent business, all the things that must be done, all the dominion that must be taken. And too often, we take off our minds from thinking of the Sabbath, either preparing for it or making it holy. And that Satan, with his instruments, much labors to blot out the glory and even the memory of the Sabbath, to bring in all irreligion and impiety. You know, the French religion, uh, sorry, the, the French Revolution, basically the French religion, the French Revolution sought to remove the seven-day week. They imposed a ten-day week. And that was in order to try to eliminate the Sabbath. And when man seeks to rule over man as though he were God, He seeks to efface the laws of God because they become a restraint on his power. And so the Sabbath is a marker for a free people. The Sabbath is a day when all men, whether servants or masters, are free for a day of leisure. And it's a day free from public business. You know, it used to be the standard in America that any contract that ended on the Lord's Day 
would automatically have an extension out to one day so that the contract could be dealt with. Courts would not enforce contracts that required people to work on Sundays. They would say, this is an illegal contract. So the idea of protecting the Sabbath in the law order, protecting it in our own lives, in our thoughts, in our words, in our relationships, it is the great effort of Satan and of the world and of our flesh to blot out the Sabbath, to keep it from our memory, and to bring in irreligion and impiety by it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Are there any comments, questions, or objections from the voting members or those with floor rights? Mr. Nye. Thank you, Elder Reese, for your teaching. Um, on the subject of, of physical objects or material things that are in the public uh, worship of God, um, I mentioned head coverings, and I wanted to. I guess I wanted to ask, is that is that something that is a part of the worship of God, like in the sense that those other things are, or is it a piece of apparel that is to be used in the worship of God? As, as I'm asking this question, I'm, I'm doubting, I'm doubting uh, its validity. I, I it, it, so the head coverings are a religious sign, right? They have religious significance. They yeah. point to authority. Yes. So they point to. So they mean, yeah. and it's to cover glory, the glory of the woman, the hair, mm-hmm. uh, who is the glory of man, yeah. so that man, who is the symbol of the glory of God, would be on display, right? Yeah. So it's a religious significance. Yeah, you're right. It's not just a piece of apparel that's used. It's, it's a sign. Okay, excellent. Thank you. All right, then let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to guard the Sabbath, that you would help us to not use man-made religious devices, that you would help us to um, reject human superstition, no matter how ancient, no matter how venerable a custom, no matter how broadly adopted, that you would help us to carefully guard the religious ordinances that you have given. We ask that you'd help us to not profane the holiness of the Sabbath by putting false holy days aside it, but to keep it distinct. We ask that you would give us strength, Father, to think, speak, and act in a manner that is fitting for the Sabbath, and help us to rightly discern works of necessity and mercy. We thank you for your law, which is precious and pure. We thank you for your son who saved us from our own covenant breaking and law breaking so that we might be renewed after his image more and more to apply the law that he has given to us as a lamp unto our feet. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.